time of praising God together. Thank you so much, Lynn and team. That's uh, Dave Pike on drums, Mandy Upshaw on flute, and Kathy Cullen on vocals. Okay. Uh, one brief announcement. Uh, on November 19th, Tamara has her second infusion therapy treatment. Thanks to those who signed up for meal and ride. We're still looking for somebody that could sit with the two boys for child care while they're gone, if, if you're available for that. That's uh, the 19th, which is Friday. And uh, I know you memorize your announcements email each week when it comes out. Uh, just a reminder that the minutes for the last the meeting of the congregation were at the end of the announcements. And also we sent the second email which has the agenda and uh, the information you need to know for the meeting as well. So hope you can come on Thursday night. Uh, it's a meeting of members, but adherents are welcome to come and attend and speak as well. So. Today's message, rejection and repentance, meeting obstacles to belief. Today's lesson from the Gospel of Mark seems to highlight three things. It's perilous to make hasty conclusions about Jesus or write him off because we don't think he's the real solution to our issues. Unbelief can be paralyzing, blocking God from bringing about in our lives the changes that would be for our good. Yet in all this, the good news Jesus entrusts to his followers to share with others is of great value. It's a privilege to be one of his ambassadors and witness the positive effects his message has in a hurting world. Let's begin with that, the positive value of what we have to offer. In Mark 6, Jesus sends out his disciples on a preaching mission to various towns. Verses 7 to 10. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Note that basic equipment is acceptable, a staff or walking stick for protection against criminals and animals, sandals for the rough terrain of Palestine at that time, but no fluff, no extras, no bread, no extra tunics such as might be needed at night for the cold out in the open. This presumes they would find lodging that recipients of what they had would be willing to provide for them. No bag, that is a begging wallet or handout sack soliciting funds from passers-by, no panhandling. This presumes their material needs will be met along the way. As the Apostle Paul quoted the Old Testament adage in 1 Timothy 5.18, where the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. You won't have to mooch, Jesus implies. What you have to contribute will offset your needs. No money in your belts as a backup plan. Your needs will be provided day by day. I guess when they prayed the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, they really meant it. And no moving around from house to house, angling to secure the best possible lodging, the cushiest couch. Be content with whoever is willing to host you. Jesus is sending them out empty-handed and traveling light with a focus on the mission rather than worrying about how their RSPs will be funded. 
He has taught them his message and vested authority in them over unclean spirits. And you know what? It was enough. He was right. The approach worked. 6.12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Their mission was his mission. They preached the same thing he did, that people needed to repent, to have a a metanoia of mind, turn about and get right with God, leave their old ways and patterns of thinking behind. This is still a core task of the church, to, to call people to repent and turn from sin so they may receive forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice and the blessing of life in the Holy Spirit. They drove out demons. How much is this needed in today's world? There's a drug and opioid epidemic alongside the COVID epidemic. Even with just alcohol, people drink to forget, to get a buzz, to escape their reality. But it can take over and destroy their lives and families. Those Inner demons love to steer your life, threatening your mental health, sometimes pulling people to dabble in the occult or Wicca or other religions in search of meaning. But those paths miss out on the truth of the biblical worldview. And uh, I don't know if you, some of you read about daughter Emily's most recent trip to Africa and, and Kenya. She was praying for this girl that had been cursed and couldn't sit, like in uh, praise God, eventually she was able to uh, sit again. So this, that was wonderful. The 12 anointed people with oil and healed the sick. How much that was needed, especially before the science of modern medicine. And even today in the era of medicine, people get worked up over our dependence on big pharma and all the possible side effects of prescription drugs someday. But how much of our ill health is due to root causes that are not actually medical? Overconsumption, trying to fill that gap emotionally with comfort food. Lack of sleep because we're entertaining ourselves late into the night and wind up sick. Letting God govern our living habits helps provide us with buffers and the ability to say no, which can safeguard our health. Knowing the love and goodness and meaning and worth only he can give spares us pitfalls of trying to sift those out of culture's sands like a Klondike enthusiast panning endlessly for gold. You won't find them. The church has an ongoing mission to care for the sick. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in 5, 14 to 16, Is any one of you sick? You should call the elders of the church, pray over him, and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, by the way, when we have communion now, uh, the last Sunday of the month will be the 28th, I think. Uh, We offer prayer with anointing at that time if people would like to be anointed with oil. Anyway, carrying on. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Physicians can work wonders in medical care, but... After the surgery is done or radiation soaks through, God's design still has to kick in for the body to heal itself. And for those medicine fails, the church through Bible promises can still be praying and offering eternal hope. All this to say, 
The Christian message is one of great positivity. We have something to offer that's of great value. You can't get it from anywhere else. Because God our maker has diagnosed the ills of the human heart and provided a cure. The truth we need to get our lives on track. A sense of vision to see and appreciate what's really of ultimate worth. That's why we're here. That's why we worship. We give worth-ship to God. Jesus is in the business of life change, metanoia, transformation of our whole being. Think of the before and after stories shared with us by Teen Challenge grads a couple of weeks back. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Being born anew from above. The peril of a hasty discount. Nevertheless, as life progresses, we humans tend to draw our own conclusions, develop our own biases and prejudices that confirm us in our patterns and guard us against others who would try to put one over on us and scam us, con us, take advantage of us. But when the folks in Jesus' hometown developed their own conclusions, it backfired. Back earlier in Jesus' ministry, it seems there had been some rejection of him when he announced his platform based on a reading in Isaiah. That's how Luke starts out his account. That was then. Now he was back in Nazareth as a rabbi with a growing reputation and a band of followers. At first, this time, the reaction of the people of Nazareth starts out warm, but soon turns skeptical. Verses 2 and 3. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They start by noting his wisdom and reputation for supernatural miracles, but quickly divert, you get shunted down the siding of, but we already know this guy. He can't be anyone important because he's local. Justin Bieber's Tim Biebs, notwithstanding. They recall for the first decades of his life, Jesus likely with Joseph, his father, as a carpenter, stonemason, or bricklayer, maybe even taking over the family business when Joseph died. Justin Martyr, a believer who died about 165 A.D., wrote of Jesus making yokes and plows in his earlier career. The people of Nazareth are quite familiar with Jesus' brothers and sisters who are ordinary Jews just like them. So they jumped to conclusions and took offense at him. New Living Translation, were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. They were scandalized, literally. The Greek verb is reminiscent of a stumbling block, a a trigger in a trap that gets stepped on and trips the catch. Prejudging, our prejudices, can be traps. Too hastily, the townsfolk discount the local lad. They can't see past their prejudices. How often our own prejudices kick into gear and rob us of the gift of coming to an honest appreciation of a stranger. We quickly categorize them by their age, their accent, their dress, their skin color, and we dismiss them, discount the possibility they might be a person we could learn from and even develop a lasting friendship with. 
We choose not to love our neighbor because of external factors without giving them an honest hearing. So our fallen bias, our our quick read of a person's station results in us disobeying one of the key commands in the greatest commandment. This peril of jumping to a conclusion is seen also in verse 11 where Jesus offers guidance to his budding missionaries in the case a town rejects their call to repent. Mark 6.11 And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. You're not just to skulk away quietly. There's a little ritual Jesus tells them to do that could serve as a visual rebuke, a, a gesture to get their attention and highlight the seriousness of their refusal to heed the apostles' message. Shake the dust off their feet, as if to say, we'll have nothing to do with you. you. You've had your chance, you rebelled against what was offered. You are left to your own fate. Today we might rub our hands together, as if we're washing our hands of the whole affair. It's what Jesus calls a testimony against them. In Matthew's account, Jesus offers more parallels that point out the seriousness of such rejection. 10, 15, 11, 22, and 24. I tell you the truth, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I tell you it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Do you think Jesus is trying to stress the seriousness of what they're doing? The peril of writing him off, discounting his message, not giving him a serious hearing. What about you? Have you consigned Jesus to a special category in your mind that makes him innocuous, irrelevant, that prevents him from having any say in your daily life because you've discounted him? Some people see Jesus as just a moral teacher. Others as a social reformer. Still others as someone that takes children in his arms but is a nutcase. Read what Jesus says about himself and you'll find he won't allow himself to be categorized that way. A good moral teacher doesn't claim to be a prophet as he does here in verse 4. Or the son of God. Or the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, by his assertions, won't leave that option open to you. There is genuine peril in rejecting his call to repentance. The paralysis of unbelief. Last, briefly, note the paralysis of unbelief in verses 5 and 6. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Matthew, in his account, expands the first part to highlight the role faith plays, 13.58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So taking those together, lack of faith both amazes Jesus, causes him to marvel, wonder, and prevents the doing of miracles. Unbelief paralyzes us. It's a roadblock in the relationship between God and a person. Commentators point out it's not that Jesus lacked the power to do miracles in his hometown, just that he chose not to do any because he detected their lack of faith. 
I like John MacArthur's note on faith. He writes, To have faith is to relinquish trust in oneself and transfer that trust to someone or something else. It's more than a set of intellectual propositions you may or may not assent to. It's trust, commitment, giving yourself to someone else, counting on them rather than your own ability or merit. Have you relinquished trust in yourself? Have you truly transferred that trust to Jesus Christ? That's what lordship is. Romans 10.9 promises that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised her from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus himself declares in John 7.38, whoever believes in me, here's faith again in the verb believe, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him, who faithed in him, were later to receive. Have you taken that step of committing to him, believing in him, receiving his living water, becoming alive in the Holy Spirit, a a soul reset? What's holding you back? There is peril in waffling. Unbelief is paralyzing, preventing you from experiencing the healing and forgiveness and right-wising God wants to work in your life. The Bible doesn't mention many things that amazed Jesus. After all, the universe came about through him. It wasn't any secret to him. But he was amazed at the faith of the Roman centurion, who wouldn't bother him to actually come, just asked him to give the command and trust that the miracle would happen, the centurion's servant would be healed. The other time where Jesus' amazement is recorded is here in this passage. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Don't let that be Jesus' attitude toward you. Trust and relationship. We've seen that faith plays a key role in this passage. The townspeople of Nazareth didn't have it, and so they missed out on the wonders Jesus might have accomplished there. The disciples, on the other hand, did trust Jesus, taking him at his word, went out and saw many healings and exorcisms take place, lives changed forever. At root, faith and trust are relational. It's not about believing in a formula that can be written on a blackboard. It's about coming to know and trust your Savior intimately as a friend and deliverer. Shah Abbas was a Persian monarch who loved his people very much. To know and understand them better, he would mingle with his subjects in various disguises. One day he went as a poor man to the public baths and in a tiny cellar, sat beside the bass was a fireman who tended the furnace. When it was mealtime, the monarch shared his coarse food and talked to his lonely subject as a friend. Again and again, the shah visited and the man grew to love him. One day, the shah told him he was the monarch and expecting the man to ask some gift from him. But the fireman sat gazing at his ruler with love and wonder and at last spoke. 
You left your palace and your glory to sit with me in this dark place, to eat of my coarse food, to care whether my heart is glad or sorry. On others you may bestow rich presents, but to me you have given yourself. And it only remains for me to pray that you never withdraw the gift of your friendship. Jesus may have grown up as a young man in Nazareth and trained as a village carpenter, but in reality, he left the glories of heaven in order to share himself with us. To trust him is such a positive thing. It's the key that unlocks the blessing of knowing him, being able to turn to him at any moment and to have hope of spending eternity with him. That gift of his love and friendship will never be withdrawn from us. When we put our faith in him, we find he chose to be your friend and mine forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the times we've ever written you off, discounted you, underestimated your ability or concern for us, or blocked you from doing something in our lives. We believe you can do marvelous miracles, casting out unclean spirits, healing the sick, turning people from a course that leads to destruction so they find life instead. We renew our commitment to you this day, Lord. Help us go forth trusting you will provide where you lead. No begging wallet or extra cloak or backup plan needed. We want this adventure to begin. In Christ's name, amen.